0: It's kind of interesting. So Blake asked me to teach Monday, and I did not reply to his email till yesterday morning because I wasn't sure. I was waiting on the other guy to say if he could do it, just because there's a lot going on. And he said he couldn't, so I said okay, I'll do it. Uh, and and it wasn't that I don't like to teach or don't like you guys. I mean, some of you, but I mean, it, but I just wasn't really sure what to teach. And it's kind of been an a, a interesting week so far, anyway, on a couple of different fronts for me personally. So. I said, I'll teach something, and I told him I'll I'll do, you know, you're in Proverbs, I'll do a proverb verse that's often misunderstood, and of course he emailed most of you that. And then uh, this morning I changed my mind, but then I saw his email, so I said, okay, well I think I can combine these two thoughts together. Um, Forgive me too, because usually the lessons I teach have a good uh, sort of logical flow and order to them. Today we're going to be a little bit scattered, so I'm just warning you up front, I do know what I'm talking about, but it's not going to be quite as organized getting it through to you. So I'm going to be kind of like my ninth grade algebra teacher was to me. He knew what he was talking about. I never got what he was talking about. So I'll be kind of like that. Guys, thanks for joining us online. Um, Good to see some of your faces there. Where I want us to start today, we're going to go back to Proverbs, but I want us to start quickly in 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, and I want to look at the heart of Paul for just a minute. And it will have to do with what we're doing here, but it just really struck me. I, I'm reading through the Bible this year, and at this point in the New Testament, my reading plan is a little bit old, a little bit new. but in this point in the New Testament, just finishing out 2 Corinthians, which happens to be one of my favorite New Testament books. Um, how long do we go, by the way? Is it till 10 after? About yeah, five. 5, 10 after? Okay. 2 um, Corinthians 11... Um, and just to give you just a real quick idea, Second Corinthians is an interesting book because there was a letter or two that that was sent by Paul to the Corinthians between first and second corinthians, and we don 't have those two letters but the second corinthian 's letter gives us some hints as to what was in at least one of these letters. And one of the things that's going on with the church in Corinth is these guys that Paul facetiously calls super apostles have come through, and they've kind of said that this Paul guy, don't listen to him. He's, he's, and Paul, really, we think his appearance was not real impressive. He was just not a real, he was not the kind of guy you'd see and say, that's the kind of guy I'd want to listen to. But the Spirit was mighty in Paul. Paul did marvelous things for the gospel But he is being undermined in the Corinthian church. And so part of this letter is him defending himself. And then while he's defending himself, you can see his passion come through. You can see really what he wants for the people in Corinth who are being led astray and deceived by other teachers. And in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion for Christ. Now I want you to turn to the end of chapter 11. Um, What Paul is doing at the end of chapter 11 is he's defending his apostleship. What he's basically saying at the end of 11, I'm about to read it, is nobody goes through what I've gone through for a lie. I would be crazy to go through what I'm going through if I were just Telling you guys a story, so he says this. He says, and he's comparing himself to these so-called super apostles. He says, whatever. And I'm in verse 21. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So probably these people are saying, Hey, we're true Jews. We know we know more background. And Paul says, No, I've got all that covered. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. You know, he, he's, he's interrupting himself here going, I can't believe I'm talking this way to you all, but I am. He says, "...with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews three forty, uh, the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and he's not referring to the Bob Dylan type of stone." Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then verse 28, look what he says. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. I think this verse should be attached to verse 3. What was Paul's anxiety for all the churches? His anxiety was not about the church and how it was run. When Paul refers to the churches, he's referring to Christians. Apart from that is my anxiety for all those who love Jesus Christ. Now you go back to verse 3. What might his anxiety have been? I fear that you might be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but in this time of COVID and riots and political upheaval and the dumpster fire that was that debate last night, I find myself often being distracted from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ because I'm thinking about all kinds of things around me that are important but they won't be in 50 or 100 years they sure won't be in a million years they're important and I and believe me I don't get into a discussion with me about political issues right now because I will get revved up and I'm not going to do that but that you know why that bothers me it doesn't bother me because I'm afraid that my party or my ideas might win or lose, it bothers me because that matters so much to me. It matters too much to me. Uh, Not that it's not important, it's just that I find that when I'm consumed more with a worldly system, and arguably in the greatest country ever to live on the face of the earth... I find that I stop thinking about the most important things, the gospel and Christ and knowing him and having an affection for him. And that's what Paul was afraid of. And and, and we may come to this later, but, you know, Satan does not really want us to become involved in Satan worship. His chief objective is, I just want to get them just a little bit distracted. That's all I need. I just need Christians just to be a tad, just a tad off the path. Not heretics, not people that believe false things, but people that simply get distracted by stuff that's not as important as evangelizing the lost and discipling the saved. So um, with that, now so this is why I told you the thoughts are going to be a little bit discombobulated. Now let me try to connect that thought back to Proverbs twenty-nine eighteen. Now turn with me there, Proverbs 29, hopefully it's 18. If it's not, I've studied the wrong verse, but... Um, Now, oh, my shoe's untied. You know, at seminary, they said, if your shoe comes untied during a lesson, that's the Lord speaking, and it's not good. All right, so. (laughs) Now, I want to take you to this verse. The reason I thought of this verse originally is because Blake was teaching Proverbs, and this is a verse in Proverbs that, unfortunately, has been misinterpreted and, therefore, misapplied, I would say, in the last three or four decades Because we quote it often in the King James language. And let me me just say, it. the verse has two parts, but only the first half is mentioned. I want to ask you, raise your hand if you've ever heard this. Where there is no vision, the people perish. How many of you have ever heard that verse? Now, if you turn there right now and your Bible is not a King James version, it does not say that, and we want to talk about that. Now, let me ask you this, when you've heard that verse... How often do you hear the application of it? Can anybody? What's that? Some. Well, what is the application you normally hear these days? What, when, when it says vision, how often is that interpreted? You've got to have a vision. In fact, I was a senior pastor of a church for eight and a half years, and you know what the number one question people would ask me was? It wasn't, do you love Jesus Do you love the gospel? Do you want to see people say, they were like, what is your vision for the church? And that's often, and this is often a verse not even used by Christians. It's used by secular leadership organizations because the way it's been taught is if you are a leader and you don't have a vision for what's to come, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not what this verse says. If you don't have a vision, then your people are just going to be lost and not know what. Now, that in principle is often true. It's just not what this verse says. And so what I want to talk about today, Randy's already heard this once, so he's nodding along. But what I want to talk about today... Is that you? Okay. Oh, okay. All right. See, Gene's already listening to something else. He's like, you've lost me here. You know, this, this, this teacher has no vision. Gene is perishing out there. All right. So I want to talk about this verse. Now, here's what I want to say about this verse. This verse is speaking to shepherds and pastors, just not quite in the way that somebody misinterpreted uh, two or three decades ago, and therefore many have misunderstood. And when I tell you this, I'm saying this again, there is nothing wrong with a leader, whether it's in a church or someone else, having a vision. In fact, I wish I were better at that. It's funny because I've heard Marty, our pastor, talk about the fact that he doesn't have that, but the elders always have. That's the way he jokes about it. It's usually someone else's vision where he says, oh, no, I don't know if we can do that. But then, you know, it happens so you're, we are worshiping in a church that has been very, very effective at saying, this is where we want to go. You've got the community center and the clinic. We've got the school. We've got missions, things going on. That is there because some people had the, the faith and the hope in the Lord to say, Lord, here's where we want to go next. So when I say this, I'm not downplaying that at all. It's just not what this verse says. However this verse is a very pastoral verse. It's a verse for our times. So let me go back to two ways I want to look at this verse. One is what do the words of the verse mean? And then second, and the reason, the main reason I want to teach this is because this is common in Proverbs, I want to tell you about something Blake may have already told you about. It's a literary device used in Proverbs called parallelism. Parallelism simply means the verse has two halves and the first half And the second half are saying the same thing with different words. That's the way this verse works because there is a second half to this verse that is often left out because the second half interprets the first half. And so if you believe the old thing about vision casting, you don't like the second half because then you go, now the verse doesn't make sense. Well, we're going to get to that. Let's talk about words first of all. First of all, when, it, when we hear the term, where there is no vision, the people perish, there's only two English translations that have it that way, the King James and some other that I can't remember. But, so in the King James, when it says, that where there is no vision. Uh, if you're looking it up in another English translation, what word does your translation use there? But Before that, where there is no what? okay there people, okay so there it's still pre, trans, no where there is no prophetic vision um let me tell you how some translations do this the niv and the new king james say revelation here the new living translation says divine guidance the esv says prophetic revelation the net bible says prophetic vision eugene peterson's the message uh paraphrases it as where no one knows what god is doing um So what is vision here? Go back to 1 Samuel. I'm going to have you thumb through a couple of books. I want to show you the same word used in another spot, and it will help us understand what vision means. 1 Samuel chapter 3, when uh, Samuel's a little boy, and he's ministering uh, to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Let me just read it if you haven't turned there. 1 Samuel 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Same exact word from the Hebrew language. You also see it in Lamentations 2.9 where it says, her prophets find no vision from the Lord. What this is referring to in the Old Testament is whenever you see this word vision, it's not referring to something that a human being comes up with. It refers to something human beings receive from God. It refers to when, I could say it this way, this is a vision. Because this has been given to us by God, our Bibles are revelation, or they are a vision. So, in, in Samuel's day, notice again, uh, and do you, which book comes before First Samuel? Don't don't flip back, but which book comes before First Samuel? Anybody remember? Bible scholars start saying the song in your head: the Book of Judges, right? Oh yeah, Ruth, my bad, Ruth. And who knows anything about Ruth after Sunday? Yeah, <laughs> right, you're right. Technically it's Ruth, the judges, and then Ruth. And Ruth is, Ruth. what Ruth does is Ruth shows us something that's going on during the time of the judges. When you read the book of Judges, though, there's this phrase that keeps coming up about four or five times. And it says, in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what happens when either... God stops speaking or people start ignoring what he's saying. In those days, does that sound familiar, by the way? In those days, everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like today? Does that sound like the place we live in right now? Yeah, very much so. Everyone just, you know, my, my truth is my truth, right? And so when we get to this point... You're, you're coming out of the period of the judges into Samuel, and what Samuel is going to introduce is a new work of God in his people. In fact, just a few chapters later, you're going to have King Saul, then you're going to have King David. You're going to see things turn around, because God, will, God has been silent. So when it says this, uh, and, you, and you probably know the story, uh, as is lying there, he hears a voice. And he, doesn't, he thinks the voice is, uh, um, or Samuel thinks it's Eli's voice, but it's not. Well, it's the Lord. What this chapter is saying to us is in those days, God had just kind of stopped speaking for a while. But then he starts speaking again to Samuel. So when it says there was no vision from the Lord, what it was saying is heaven was silent. And Israel did not hear in those times from God. What, what a scary place to be if you're Israel. So that's what vision means. When we go back to Proverbs 29, 18, and we see the word vision, think revelation from God. Revelation from God. And then in uh, the other word in 29, is in the King James, the people perish. But many of you have noted that your translations say the people perish cast off restraint the new living translations say the people run wild most english translations say the people cast off restraint in the message eugene peterson says the people stumble all over themselves This same words used back in exodus 32 where moses has been up on the mountain and the people of israel get impatient and they want him to come down but he won't and they start getting mad and they finally go to aaron and they say aaron Let's just make a calf and let's worship that calf. And it says, and when Moses came down from the mountain, he saw that the people had broken loose. Same word. Does that remind you of Seattle (laughs) or Portland? (laughs) You watch what's going on in some of these cities and you think to yourself, "I, I mean, I keep thinking to myself, it feels like we're in a science fiction movie about america 200 years from now feels like we're in logan's run or something like that although i never saw logan's run but i know it was science fiction and i think farrah fawcett was in it and that's why i was interested but i digress but i think she was is this part going to be on the podcast Uh, i don't think so okay i had a i had a great childhood but the people have broken loose so let's put these two ideas together Where there is no word from the Lord, either because it's not being revealed or it's being ignored, the people who have not have this, they break loose. Romans 1 talks a lot about this, where it says God gave them over. He said it talks about there were people, and it talks about people in a different generation doing multiple things, but it reminds me of what one of my favorite professors used to say. He said, the judgment of God is when he lets you do what you want. That's what you don't want in a society. And as I look around our society right now, that is really what I'm seeing. It's almost as if God is saying, I'm not even going to use the authorities to tamp this down. I'm just going to let these people get what they've asked for. And it's scary, isn't it? But this this is not anything new in world history, this kind of thing. But that's the idea. This is a frightening verse. Where there is no word from the Lord, the people run wild. They cast off restraint. It's the idea of a ship breaking free from its anchor. It's, it's judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you know, I think about this, just in the last few years, I kept hearing people say this, I'm living according to my truth. And you know, for so long, that was kind of harmless. But now I think what we're seeing is the fruit of a society that has said, I don't want to call you on that. I don't want to question that. I'll just let you live according to your truth. Well, now we're seeing the violent expressions of that. We're also, though, saying, I don't want to come down too hard on our society. But one of the things that's really troubling me of late, and I don't know how much you're caught up with the evangelical world, but over the last three or four years, we've seen pastors of large churches who have fallen, who have had a life that no one knew about and that their elders were too afraid to confront. We've got a a major, um, a man that I deeply loved and look up to who passed away last year and now we're getting revelations and they seem to have some credence to them that he had a secret life of sexuality and of sexual abuse. And and, you, and, you, and this guy was a hero of mine. You've got a man in Dallas who pastors a great church there who said, I need to take a break, not because of sexual immorality, but he said, I have just become too prideful and someone's finally called me on it. And it's scary because we're looking around the evangelical landscape. And I told Jenny this morning, as I was talking about this, I said, you know what I'm thankful for, Jenny? I know this is crazy. I'm thankful that I've never become that big a deal in Christianity. Because that's... That's a prime place. When you pray for Marty, pray for that. Because what happens is you get into these big churches, and I can only imagine the pressure that comes on you. And you know what? As far as we can tell, everything's been good here. We have a great senior pastor who has a great marriage, who's a great guy, and we haven't seen that. But I'm telling you, that danger is there. That danger is there for anyone who stands up behind a lectern like I am, and people listen to them. I could have a secret life now that no one knows about. Marty's going to start, Marty Delonge right here, he's going to start investigating soon. But, um, but it's, it's frightening because the one thing I start to think about is who do we not know about? Who's still, and, and you know what's interesting about this, all of this, is not the individual, but the cultures they have surrounded themselves with. Cultures where no one's calling them on this. No one's saying anything. And it's frightening. So I only say that to say this is not simply a problem from people that don't sit in, in Sunday services every Sunday. It's even a problem for those of us that do every Sunday and those who lead. And that somewhere along the way, even in a little sense, those kinds of people have stopped listening to God. And maybe, maybe they've been listening to God in 99 other ways, but there's that one area where they've just stopped And they've decided, in this area, I'm going to live my own truth. (laughs) There's a guy I follow on Twitter that I really admire. Hopefully he won't fall, but he tweeted yesterday, he said, here's the deal. Just do sexual things with your wife. That's the tweet. I thought, that's pretty good stuff. Just do the sexual stuff with your wife. And everything's going to be fine. Because that's what we keep seeing. And so, and I don't come down hard on these guys because I remember that Corinthians verse. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I respect the devil. I hate him, but I respect him. He is very, very good at what he does. And if he can get an entire society to stop listening to the word of God, or if you read the history of the Israelite kings, if he can get Israel to somehow lose the law in the temple until they forget it even existed. And then Josiah comes along and they start cleaning out the temple. They go, look what we found. There's actually a book here that tells us what we're supposed to do. That's, that's where people just cast it off restraint. If, when we get to that point, I think I've lost my train of thought. told you it would be scattered. But, but we've got to be careful that we don't get to that point in the sense of one of our roles as Christian men is to make sure that the Word of God is, first of all, in our own lives being heeded and obeyed, but secondly, it's being cast out. It's being broadcast, not cast out. That sounds like it's demonic. It's being broadcast out there. That's one of the things, you know... You know how this helps is I'm watching that debate last night, and I'm telling you it was a dumpster fire and a train wreck and everything in between. And all I could think of was Philippians 3. Because, see, the Word of God helps us in those times. But my citizenship is in heaven. I'm an American, but I'm an American second. I'm a heavenly citizen first. This is the Holiday Inn. This is a hotel we're staying in. When you stay in a hotel, you don't fix it up. You take care of your room and you respect it and you obey the rules and you're a good citizen in that hotel. But that's not this is not my home. Heaven is my home. Paul's talking to the Philippians. What were the Philippians of? They were a colony of Rome. What was the big deal about Rome? Rome everybody wanted to be from Rome because Rome was where it was at. Rome was the strong nation. And Paul goes to them and says, I know you're proud of yourselves that you're Roman citizens, and I am too, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is why knowing the Word of God helps. I'm, I'm looking at what's going on in our society, and you know what I often do? I often say, Lord, give me a verse here. <laughs> give me a scripture. Because I, I, I visit a 93-year-old woman, sweet, sweet woman. I've seen her once since COVID. She finally said, just, just come over to my house. I've got to see somebody besides my family. Not that her family drives her crazy. But I was talking to her on the phone back in May. I said, her name's not Mary, but I said, Mary, have you ever seen anything like this? You're 93. And she goes, never seen anything like it. And if a 93-year-old says she's never seen anything like it, then I'm going to wake up here and say... Boy, all of us are going through something that we've never been through before, and it just keeps getting worse. And I don't know about you, but I, I keep thinking, in November, no matter who wins, even if your guy wins, is everything going to be okay? Probably not. What are they already saying? Well, probably going to be riots that night <laughs> and the next day. And, 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 and we're just living in that time where there is a place, though. There is a place in First Timothy 3.15 That is the uh, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. What is that place? The church. We have the truth. Not that we have the truth on our side and we're going to necessarily win in a sense. But we have the truth that says that uh, everything is ultimately going to be okay. Not only is it going to be okay, it's going to be fantastic. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Now let's go back um, to parallelism. Uh, I got off task here, and I'm sorry I don't have questions today because this was a last-minute deal, and I, just, I didn't really plan a, a, a thorough lesson like I wanted to. But notice the second half. Someone read out loud to me the second half of verse Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. What's the second half say? Happy is he who keeps the law, or blessed is he who keeps the law. Now that verse could be referring to the Mosaic law, it could be referring to the law in it could be referring to both. But notice how parallelism works in the Proverbs. Where there is no revelation, the people go Crazy. But happy is he who keeps the law. You see in that second half stability. The first half of the verse instability. The second half of the verse stability. That's how parallelism works often in the Psalms and Proverbs. Is You'll either have the first line say something, and the second line will say the exact same thing in different words, or the first line will say something, and the second line will say, and here's the antithesis of that. So, blessed is he who hears the law, who obeys the law. That's the idea of who keeps the law. Blessed is he. Happy is he. His life is not filled with chaos. He may have chaos going on all around him, but in his soul, he has peace. He has strength. And I've got a friend that many of you know right now, who's on our staff is going through leukemia right now, going through treatment and I've been able to correspond with him a couple times via text. And this, this is a rotten time. I don't know if he's going to make it. He doesn't either but he keeps texting scripture and I keep texting it to him. Why do we do that? Not because, well, if you, if you do this enough, the leukemia is going to go away. Maybe it won't, but what does he need right now that chemo can't do? What does he need right now? That's even deeper than healing. He needs the security of knowing the living and true God and knowing that he's in God's hands. Um, you know, that, that's in congregational care, we're constantly ministering to people whose lives just may not get better. But, but you've also got that idea in 2 Corinthians 4. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Uh, anybody in agreement? Larry, I know you're in agreement with that, for the most part. <laughs> <Don't wake up>. <laughs> <laughs> Outwardly, we are wasting away. But inwardly, we're being renewed day day by day outwardly we've lost our spouse but we know where she is and we know don't we Ken that one day we're going to be with her and she's going to be tall finally you know and and she's going to be young and spry and so we look at the chaos around us and what is the answer to the question for us? Happy is he who keeps the law. Lord, teach me your word. Teach me to obey your word. Not because it's a good luck charm, but because I need to be blessed and I need to have an inner sense of joy when chaos is all around me. Happy is he who keeps the law. That's the, that's the parallelism to the first half of the verse. So how does this apply? Do you see how this is still a pastoral leadership verse? It's still a leadership verse. It's a leadership verse, though, in the sense of shepherding, that as a pastor, and even you who aren't pastors, but you're believers in Jesus Christ, one of our chief goals is to make sure that people hear the truth and that they find that there's something better to hope in. Uh, I have a relative who texted us the other day she is for a certain political candidate and she said of him he will heal our nation and i said ma'am i didn't i didn't respond jenny, she did it to jenny i said jenny i got about 17 different responses no no Lance. <laughs> exactly how you know I'm, I'm still going there but but i'm like how tragic is that That someone is depending on a political candidate to heal a broken people. There is only one man who can heal a broken people. And unfortunately, this person that's in my life that I know does not know him. Maybe does not want to know him. But we're praying. These are great opportunities. But I just read that and I thought, how tragic how sad that every bit of this person's hope is riding on November 3rd. Is it November 3rd? I've been filling out mail-in ballots. I don't know. No, I'm (laughs) kidding. (laughs) But I thought, how, how, how tragic is that? And how tragic is it if we convey that, even though, go vote. Stand up for what you believe in. But at the end of the day, remind everyone else around you that, guess what? Even if what I want to happen doesn't happen, should people come through my neighborhood and start trashing my neighborhood? Uh, I'll call Charles first of all, and he'll he'll, he'll fix me up with something to defend myself. But should that happen, should the worst happen, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is not going to happen to me. And that's the second death. I've got that hope because the Word of God has been revealed to me, and I am seeking to heed that law and... Listen to that law and obey it and apply it. Um, so, so the question, I think, is one of the questions, a couple of the questions. Let me just, let me close with this. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 11 just real quick. And I'm sorry I didn't make time for questions. But does anybody in the room have a question or comment right now? Yeah, that's a good question. When God quits speaking, what does a Christian do? And we have an advantage here because in one sense, God has stopped speaking at Revelation 22. But as long as we have this with us, then God continues. He doesn't say anything new. It's just we see things that maybe we haven't seen. That's a great question, though. But you see in Bible history, you know, between the time there's two periods in biblical history where God was silent for 400 years. America hadn't even been around 400 years it was back in Egypt and then back between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, that great Italian prophet Malachi, that was the last spoken word of God. Thank you for laughing. You know his name's Malachi. But Malachi stopped at the end of, is it, isn't that the last book? And then 400 years. And then you know who the last Old Testament prophet really is? John the Baptist. Because he is the final prophet to announce, here's Messiah. So just a technicality there. He's the, he, what, technically? So, Um, 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There are many ways for us to not let our thoughts be moved away, but the prime way is to stay in the Word of God and keep coming on Wednesdays, keep reading our Bibles, um, keep, even though God has technically, he won't speak again until he comes back. We have this treasure right here. And you know what we have that in America is so great? Is we have about 56 different translations. Isn't that great? We, you, you, we have no excuse for not reading and, and, and absorbing the Word of God. Now, one final question I want to leave with you all in light of that. This is three sermons in one, but this is a, something I've taught in the past too. Two words I want to tell you. Attention and affections. Think of those two words, attention and affections. Josh, have you heard that? Have you heard me talk about attention? I don't think you were on staff when I talked about that a few years ago. But um, here's the question. What is the center of my attention and what is the object of my affections? That's a question we need to constantly ask. And that answer to that might change by the minute. But at the end of the day, the question is, and this is one way I want to put it, is, If someone were to answer that question for me at my funeral, I sure hope they would say Jesus Christ was the center of his attention and the object of his affections. There's a lot of things that can be the center of our attention and not be the object of our affections. When you're in a tornado warning and it's coming straight for your house, that's the center of your attention. Sorry, OA, that's truly happened to you. That's the center of your attention, but it is not the object of your affections. But when we start paying attention to those things, then we'll start to get an idea of what we truly worship. And that's when Paul says a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Let me put it another way. Paul is praying for the people in Corinth that Jesus Christ and the true living Jesus Christ, not the false Jesus that these teachers are bringing in, that he will be the center of their attention and the object of their affections. Pray, my friends. That you will be able to see in your heart what things are in there that are capturing your attention and affections. And then pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I want Jesus to be the center of my attention and the object of my affections. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have your word. Lord, we, you know, there are people in the world right now, they don't have a Bible in sight We probably have 10 or 15 in our homes. We are so blessed to have this precious word. And Lord, I pray for us. I know that uh, all of us in this room, the enemy is just constantly coming at us with distractions. He's constantly coming at us saying, give this your attention, give this your affections, whatever it might be. The Lord, may, may, may you use every vehicle in our lives where the word of God comes down whether it's on Sunday morning or Wednesday at lunch or early in the morning or late at night when we crack our bibles open and we maybe we might just read a chapter we might read a whole book but lord we pray that you will make us men of the word of God not so that we'll earn points with you not so that we will see ourselves as better than others but simply so that Our lives will never be ones where we cast off restraint, where we break loose, but where we are in submission to your good and guiding word. And we thank you for that promise. Blessed is the one who keeps the law. Blessed is the one who listens to the revelation and heeds it and submits to it. Lord, protect us. Make Christ the center of our attention and the object of our affections. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, gentlemen. It's great to see you guys.